Well, today we continue our series in the book of Ephesians, uh, having taken a break last week. Last week we heard from Pastor Chris, and uh, throughout the week I've been reminded of what Pastor Chris was preaching to us last time, uh, as God pours his love into us, and he preached from Romans chapter 5, which I found to be a very edifying sermon. So today we continue back in the book of Ephesians. <coughs> and recently in our sermon series, we've been looking at what it looks like to live a life to the glory of God. And we considered God's instruction to us in our roles as husbands, in our roles as wives, as parents, as children. And really all these things comes underneath the fact that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes every single aspect of our life. And today we look at our aspect of work. What does it look like for the gospel of Jesus Christ to change the way in which we work? So whether you are a student at home, working, or whether even you are retired, you still have hours with which you fill the day and are working, redeeming the time, as Ephesians says, to the glory of God. We are in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. I'll give you a little bit of background of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter in the early 60s AD to the church in Ephesus, or modern Turkey. And like all the other epistles in uh, Scripture, all the other letters, it was written to a uh, a church or a group of churches. And really, all the churches were to stand and and read the, the letter out loud to their community. Same with Ephesians. So if he, uh, Paul writes this letter most likely to uh, the church in Ephesus and the surrounding regions there. And he wrote wanting to help root the Christians in the grace of God. So in chapters 1 to 3, as we mentioned before, it's all about God and what God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross. Salvation by faith through God's grace alone. And then chapters 4 to 6 address the practical implications of that gospel. All the stuff that flows from chapters 1 to 3. And today, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, we see how Christians, changed by the gospel, are to work for the glory of God. Look there, I'll go ahead and read that section. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a, with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Our outline today flows simply from the passage. He spends a number of verses speaking to bondservants, and then he spends one verse speaking to uh, the responsibilities of masters. Uh, so our outline today follows that uh, right there. But before we get to our first official point, we have to acknowledge the fact that Paul is talking about slavery. And there is no rallying cry to his readers calling them to overthrow the institution. And with what our very own nation has experienced and gone through, the the sins that we have committed so deeply against other people, many wonder why Paul and Jesus and other New Testament authors don't sound the alarm against this injustice. In response to this question and criticism, some people explain, so here just holding out fact, that slavery in the Old Testament and during Paul's day was different than the slavery, the chattel slavery that took place in the U.S. and Britain. Basically saying, look, it's more complicated than you think, which in fact is true. So here's some facts. The slavery this nation has known involved the stealing and selling of people. This is a slavery that God condemns. So listen to Exodus 21:16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone in possession of him shall be put to death. So very clearly, this is something that God prohibits in the Old Testament. It is a capital crime to do it and to participate in it. So stealing and selling another human being made in the image of God in God's Old Testament law is a capital offense punishable by death. 
Slavery during Paul's day included this kind of slavery, unfortunately. But it also included something like indentured servitude, which, is, which we also find in the Old Testament. So you may ask, um, why in the world do we find it in the Old Testament? This kind of servitude was actually a safety net for the poor. So this kind of indentured servitude functioned as a safety net for the poor. So if you found yourself in deep poverty, you know, you're going to die, you could enter into servitude with another person or with another family. Um, you could sell yourself to them, and then you would be taken care of in that family, one would hope. That was, that's what the expectation was. Or take, look at it this way, if you were in deep debt and you couldn't get yourself out of it, you could sell yourself to another family and the family would take on your debt, they'd wipe it clean, but yet you would sell yourselves to them. And this servitude in the Old Testament even came with term limits. So they said, look, you can do, you can, uh, do this for six years, but if you uh, have a servant, you must, you must let them go in the seventh year. And this was to remind everyone of the fact that God saved Israel from slavery to Egypt there. So in the Old Testament, while stealing and selling a human being made in the image of God was punishable by death, uh, servitude was allowed. And the records show, um, thinking about the Roman times, uh, that slave owners in this servitude, uh, in some, their slavery in some ways represented this servitude. Uh, they trained their slaves they gave them an education, they gave them life skills, and oftentimes the slaves were more uh, able than masters. Eventually, slaves could buy back their freedom. In other words, it was actually within their grasp for many. Uh, or you could just choose to be a slave for life, because maybe life within that family was actually better than life outside. So, without doubt, uh, it's complicated. Um, but of course, Roman slavery was also brutal, like that of U.S. chattel slavery. The system and its participants often treated people as objects to be owned and disposed of, as opposed to people made in the image of God, and because of that, possessed inherent worth and dignity. Uh, so there are horrible records, or there are records of horrible mistreatment uh, by, of slaves by their masters, and the law permitted it, sadly. Sinfully. Uh, by Roman law, the master had entire authority, sovereign authority over everybody in his household. Of course, that included the slaves. So they could sell, they could punish, and they could even execute for the smallest issue. And as we could, would expect for many slaves, this was horrible living conditions. Uh, so that's, that's obviously sinful. But regardless of how different or similar it was to the slavery that the U.S. participated in, Roman slavery was an unjust, often cruel, and sometimes lethal system. And what is clear from this Bible passage and others, which we've already read, Jesus, Paul, and Paul's fellow New Testament authors do not go after this, the institution of slavery. The question is why? If you're familiar with Christianity... You know that there are many things and systems that fail us as humans. In fact, all systems fail us as humans. But the real problem lies elsewhere than a system. The real problem lies deeper than any institution here in the world. It is in the institution's makers, the institution's participants. Is the institution itself absolutely... It is sinful, but the institution is not the main problem, as strange as that sounds. Greg Gilbert explains the aim of Jesus and the apostles was simply deeper than the reformation of a social system. They were focused on the root of the problem, the sinful state of the human heart. Slavery was the rotten fruit of a rotten heart. Slavery was the rotten fruit of a rotten heart. It was, and the, it was and is the product of a sinful heart, a rotten, of, a rotten heart. So, of course, if you were to remove the sinful system, the, sinful, the rotten root, you're still left with the rotten root. Take away the rotten fruit, still left with the rotten root. Get, Greg Gilbert continues, Simply changing the system wouldn't have solved the problem in any long-term sense. The sinful human heart would just find another way to oppress 
others, even if the system of Roman slavery had been eliminated. Sadly, we don't have to go very far to see just how we oppress others. Check many of our internet histories and you see just how we believe we somehow think we have the right to own people and discard them like meat. Just think about pornography. As Christians, we believe that the root problem is the sinful heart. And in fact, our hearts, so to speak, are leaking all the time. So Jesus says, if you want to know a person's heart, look at what comes out of his mouth. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks, Matthew 15, 18. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 to 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So it's so clear that everyone has, everyone shares the same root problem. That is, we have all indeed sinned against our Creator. And so we are rebels, as David mentioned earlier, which is uh, uh, God through Isaiah is, is reminding Israel of the very thing in the scripture passage that we just read earlier. But in fact, everybody has sinned against God and have earned for ourselves just judgment. Everyone has rejected our very Maker and gone out and ran out from underneath His authority and in fact have revolted against the great King. So we indeed are all sinners. Now, is slavery an abomination? Absolutely. And even though the main problem is the heart, should Christians be concerned about the system? Absolutely. And thank God we have examples from history of Christians who have, who have had changed hearts, who then go on to change systems by God's grace. So in the second and third centuries, Christians were known to set their slaves free. And they did this in public, kind of like a ceremony with witnesses in front of their pastors. And they did this... Uh, as an application of the gospel. Chrysostom in the 4th century wrote that in Christ Jesus there is no slave, therefore it is not necessary to have a slave. He then goes on to challenge the systems and he says, look, go, Christians, buy them. And after you've taught them some skill by which they can maintain themselves, set them free. That's his, uh, what he found to be an ethical, or the, the, the road of ethics he chose. St. Patrick of Ireland of the 5th century is known to have condemned slavery. Eventually, by the 12th century, scholars say that Europe, the European continent was virtually free from slavery. But as the dark story of the wicked heart continues, slavery was revived in the European continent. It was indigenous to Africa. It was revived. And then in the modern age, we can look to the English politician William Wilberforce, who in the 19th century labored tirelessly to outlaw slavery throughout the entire British Empire. By, the, by God's grace, Wilberforce's efforts and the efforts of others came to fruition in the 1830s, and slavery was outlawed throughout the empire. And then, as we know, eventually in America. But of course, we know the sinful heart still remains. But praise God, there are people who, with changed hearts, labor to change the system. We see a people who are changed who then seek to see systems change. And interesting, this has been the pattern of Christianity is the pattern that we see in scripture. As one commentator puts it, Christianity's emphasis has always been on the transformation of individuals who will in turn influence society. The emphasis is not the transformation of society, which will then transform individuals. Imagine what kind of gospel that would be if that's what the emphasis was. Transform society, which then transforms individuals. The gospel then becomes societal transformation which actually is no different than all the other groups around us who are, which we thank God for, laboring to change society. But here, the gospel message changes hearts, which is what we've been looking at in the book of Ephesians. How God rescues us. He enters down into the heart of depravity to save and to lift up all through the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiving us. Now keep these things in mind uh, as we turn to the setting of Ephesians now. Living in the Roman Empire in the first century would have been very different, even uh, compared to a society living in the South during America's slavery times. In the Roman Empire, get this, in the Roman Empire, one out of every two people were slaves. One out of every two people. 50% of us would be slaves. Slavery was inherent to society, so much so that one person trying to help readers understand the, this fact 
writes that that society was as dependent on slaves as we today are dependent on machines, computers, our vehicles. That's how, that's how uh, dependent they were on slavery. But even though slaves were so common, there was still a huge gap between the slaves and then, of course, the non-slaves. Uh, slaves, of course, were looked down upon. Even where they had good education, ability, responsibility, they were still a different class by law. In the Greco-Roman culture, a slave was always a slave. So Aristotle, whose impact was affected, who was felt on the Roman world, this is what he wrote a few hundred years before uh, Paul's day. A slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Therefore, <clears throat> there can be no friendship with a slave as slave. So not only did Aristotle and those who followed him think that uh, a slave was inherently of less value, which is against God's word. Not only did they think that a slave was inherently of less value than the one who owned the slave, socially the owner and slave never mixed. <clears throat> they couldn't be friends, which is what Aristotle says. Imagine the pride that might have been nurtured in the slave owner's heart, right? Their ego trips and thinking they own another person. Right? I mean, some of you guys who might manage, you might even have your own ego trips, and you're not thinking you, you, you own your employees, but yet you sort of uh, trip up on your own ego there. And they, you, here these owners would treat them like a thing. <clears throat> and then imagine the response from the slave. Imagine uh, the hatred, the anger, the bitterness that a slave could have towards their master, especially if the master was unjust. And then imagine, you know, you can think back about how, how the master would respond and try and impose his authority on these unruly slaves. So for some, it was simply hell on earth. Not all, but certainly some. But if that's the world's interaction between slaves and masters and how they interact and how they work, what about the church's interaction? The Christian's responsibility, whether slave or master, this brings us to point number one, the responsibilities of the Christian bondservant. Here we get to verses 5 to 8. The responsibilities of a Christian bondservant. The responsibility is clear there in verse 5. Paul says directly to the slave, saying, Obey your masters. Obey your masters. Now, what we don't want to think is, we don't want to think that Paul here is scolding the slaves as if they aren't obeying. Here it's really telling that Paul speaks directly to the slave, isn't it? He assumes that the slave is going to be right there with his master in the gathered church, listening to this letter read, listening to the words of God, expecting them to be changed. Here Paul treats them like human beings, and he speaks directly to them. Uh, I'm assuming this call was difficult to swallow for some. You know, we know that Christians are works in progress, people who still wrestle with sin. Uh, so imagine you know, both the slave and then the slave slave's owner, the bond service master. They all came from the culture out of the Roman world, right? So they're con they're converted out of a culture where they think that these people, by definition, are less than them. They become Christians, and then now all of a sudden they begin to think differently about one another. And so you can imagine, perhaps some bond servants are reacting to Paul's words, maybe thinking that it is difficult, thinking that their master might be unkind or maybe partial or maybe simply a plain old jerk. And we know that if we want relationships to change, you know, oftentimes we look first thinking that the other person is going to change, right? That's what we pray for. But here, the bond servant is not called to pray for his or her master's change but is directed back to his own service. He says, obey your masters. And it's not just obey. It's, Paul also says, look, I want you to obey in this way. They are to obey with respect. So that, that's why he talks about fear and trembling, which we're going to come back to a little bit later. He <laughs> encourages them to obey with a sincere heart. So this here is obedience, but really giving themselves to their master, like laboring for their good. So in your own work, I'm sure you know that there are many reasons why you actually do your work. We can be compelled to do work even if our bosses are difficult. Maybe what gets us through another day of work is dreaming that your situation is going to change, right? 
You dream about the future when one day you will be the CEO. You can tell everybody else what to do. And you think, one day I'm going to be free, and so that's what gets you to labor in your work. That's not what Paul says. Or maybe what gets you to work is fatalism, right? Ah, I can't do anything anyway, so let's just do it. Just grit our teeth and just get it done. Paul doesn't say just grit your teeth and get it done. It's not fatalism. Maybe what gets you through work is your morals, right? Maybe you're just an upstanding person. I'm a moral person. I'm just supposed to obey my boss. That's not what Paul says either. Paul here, he says, what enables you Christian, you slave to work, is working for the glory of God. Being present in your work, enabling them to work faithfully, respectfully, with heart, is the glory of God. According to Paul, what compels their hard work is knowing who they work for. That's interesting, isn't it? What compels us to work? Is knowing who you ultimately work for? Does that compel you in the daily grind of your jobs, your 9 to 5s, or 2 a.m. to 10, or whatever it is you work? Here, their responsibility of working diligently, obeying, submitting, flows from their identity. That's what enables them and fuels their work. Responsibility flows from their identity as bondservants of Christ. Responsibility flows from their identity as bondservants of Christ. In these verses, Paul, while calling them to obey and submit in hearts to their earthly masters, repeatedly reminds them of their relationship with Jesus, their new identity with Christ. They may be, he says, look, you may be bondservants to earthly masters or earthly lords. The word master there in English is the same word as lord. And here I think there's a double meaning implied or a play on words. Uh, they may be bondservants to earthly masters, but look, you guys, having been bought, brought into the house of God, you are bondservants of a heavenly master. You are bondservants of a heavenly Lord. Verse 6 says there, bondservants of Jesus, bondservants of Christ. So this identity was to be the identity that defined them, that fueled them, that even helped them endure unjust suffering even. Now, if you were like me, you have struggled with identity issues, right? Thinking of work, I mean, are we all tempted to identify ourselves by what we do? Or maybe we're tempted to identify ourselves in what we have, right? So we do, we, we want to do other things. And so, ah, uh, that sometimes just discourages us because we want to do that. Instead, we're stuck doing this. As if our value was based in what we do. Or maybe it's based on what we have, right? Our identity is based on what we have. They, the CEOs, make $50 million a year, and I only make $9, $10 an hour. And so we think I must automatically be of lesser value than the person making millions over there. So just think about what you don't have or where you aren't. How much is your thought life, your emotional life, affected by these things what you don't have what where you aren't if it is a lot then you have identity issues you have them your work and value is based in what you have or do now there's there's so many different consequences here you can just imagine looking to your next door neighbor right and if they have less and do less than you then actually that same thinking that you judge yourself with all of a sudden you're judging that person so little baby Bo back there, as, as AJ is rocking baby Bo, AJ can do much more than baby Bo can. If AJ is of greater value than baby Bo, then his value and worth is less. And this type of thinking actually is exactly what led Hitler to gas the elderly, to gather them together, to eliminate them off the face of the world. This type of thinking is the same thing that leads many people today, unfortunately. 55 million, maybe 57 million people since 1973 to discard of their babies that are in the womb. This type of thinking is the same type of thinking <clears throat> that leads ethicists in the Ivy League towers, ivory towers, Peter Singer, to argue that since logically it is fine to get rid of a fetus, it is logically fine to get rid of an of a infant because they don't do anything. 
Imagine the possible, possible identity issues these slaves might have had. Maybe they define themselves by what they are not. They are not free, not wealthy, not enjoying privilege, and on and on and on. Maybe, maybe they def- define themselves by their debt. Maybe they define themselves by their abuse, by their poverty. They don't have a good job, and they want a better job. So when Paul comes along and calls them to obey as bondservants of Jesus, it is as if he says, look, I know you may be struggling with identity issues. But know this, your identity, friends, is in Jesus. You are a bondservant of Christ, brought into the household of God, where you now serve the Lord, and this Lord loves you. This Lord has bled for you. This Lord has poured out the spiritual blessings upon you. What hope that would have been for uh, someone clawing after some kind of identity in the stuff of the world. Paul says, look, the identity you need, you actually possess, Christian, with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what it might have been like uh, as a slave to embrace the gospel? Being the lowest of the low, yet having all riches in Jesus Christ? Talk about the jackpot. Forget $1.5 million. Just forget it. I I don't even care about that. When you have riches in Jesus Christ. So turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. A slave can win Powerball, but that doesn't change anything of his heart. You believe in Jesus, and that changes your eternal future. Chapter 1 verse 3, he says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Past tense, we have it in Christ with not just one spiritual blessing, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. One eleven. Look there. One eleven. In this Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, and in the Spirit, according to one fourteen, we have the down payment of our inheritance, which guarantees our possession of it. Nobody can take it away. It's guaranteed. It's locked up there. It is preserved for you, according to Peter in First Peter. Look there in chapter two, verse four. God, the Father over all, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How is that for authority and privilege? And then get this. He says, so that, this is why Jesus saves, this is why God seats us in the heavenly places. It is so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And all of this, as chapter 3 says, was affected through the blood of Jesus Christ. What he's talking about here is salvation giving, given to sinners who deserve nothing but God's wrath. And so God, because he is loving and because he is gracious and merciful, even though we are the ones who rebelled against him, he sends his son takes on flesh, lives a perfect life, dies where we should have, bears the wrath and sin that we deserved and had committed in order to give us all of those riches in Jesus Christ. And then on the third day, he is raised from the dead. Relationship is restored. We're brought back into relationship with God and he is over all things. And so even now, our relationships are being restored with him and then with others. And of course, we are made partakers of these blessings by God's grace in Christ Jesus. This is identity issues here. And here, God holds out all of these things, a new identity for those who repent of their sins and believe. So the question here is, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, the question is, are you putting your identity in something else? In what what you do? In what you possess, God says, no. God says, you put your identity in Jesus, in him. It is through him that you are made, and it is for him that you are made. And you were designed to have a perfect relationship with this very God. And you find satisfaction, identity, forgiveness, right standing with God, if you repent of your sins and believe. This is what it means to be a bond servant of Jesus Christ. 
There's no insult here, but only inheritance. And having Christ and all the benefits of salvation that come from and through their heavenly Lord was to anchor and compel them to obey their earthly lords. Being protected by this Lord, adopted by this Lord, receiving the inheritance from this Lord, frees the slave to serve their earthly lords with diligence, effort, drive, heart, faithfulness. You see how being bonded to Jesus changes their service such that their service to their master is service to Christ? As Christians, you know, everything we do is to be done unto the Lord. As 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And here Paul's just applying this principle to work. This is how we can say, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. It's not, he's not saying that, look, you, your earthly master speaks divine words that you ought to obey as if they, he is God or she is God. He's saying, look, since you're a Christian, any service rendered as a Christian ought to be service rendered unto Christ. Any service rendered as a Christian ought to be service rendered unto Christ. Which is why he says, look there in verse 7, work rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Even though Paul speaks to slaves and masters, this has application for us today. You know, this passage helps us as Christians with our own identity issues. This passage helps us with our own identity issues. You know, if you want to know where you find your identity in, check your aspirations, your desires. If a slave's greatest aspiration was to become the master, then Paul's words make no sense. Do you realize that? If the only thing that a slave is living for is to become the one that owns, these words make no sense. In fact, we, we don't even need to care about all these things. If, if the only thing we care about is grasping after material gain, these words make no sense. Who cares about what Paul says? Obey your boss with respect because you serve God? At best, we obey our bosses because of what we get out of it. In that situation, your boss is a means to your own end, to fulfilling your own idolatries. Your boss is not someone who needs the gospel. He's just someone who stands in your way of your own cherished aspirations. <coughs> but imagine, imagine if your greatest and cherished aspirations were in fact to honor the Lord who created you in every situation? Imagine if your sole aspiration was to love Jesus, pursue godliness, live a Christ-centered life, honor Jesus and hoping in Him throughout all of life, even circumstances under a bad boss. Then this passage makes all sense. Just like how the Father's will made sense to Jesus. And Jesus gives Himself to it, going to the cross and dying. He delights in it, though it required suffering. So what do your aspirations tell you about your identity? Particularly those of you who labor under difficult bosses. Do you see your boss as someone you can minister to in your Christian faithfulness? Magnifying Christ through fulfilling your responsibilities that your boss has given you? You know that in your faithfulness, friend, you show that your joy in Christ can never be wrong. In your faithfulness... Even though you aren't moving up, even though you might get passed over for uh, promotions, you prove that Christ and his kingdom and his inheritance is all satisfying to you. And even when your boss mistreats you, you even show that Christ's rule is good. And in that rule, you trust in. And that rule is worth trusting in. Christ and his rule is what Paul encourages us to trust in. Look there in verse 8. These bondservants are to render service with goodwill, knowing, right, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or his is free. He's pointing them to something greater than the immediate, to, to God's economy of things. And he says there, trust in that. Obey, knowing that God watches you, friend. If you suffer, God watches you. And he, in fact, will repay. That's the kind of Lord he is. 
Uh, please do not get me wrong. I am not saying that godliness means you must stay in a bad job. I talked to somebody recently, and they were expressing this person was expressing the fact that they were in a bad job. And I think one of my first questions was, "Have you thought about looking for a different job?" So godliness does not mean you must stay in your workplace or you must continue to labor under a bad boss. Paul even says to slaves in 1 Corinthians 7.21, if you can get your freedom, take it. Take it. I am, though, saying that if there is no godliness in aspiration, in other words, if you do not want to display Christ even in a bad job, even under a bad boss, you need a big dose of identity in Jesus. Trusting in Christ and his management of the world and his ability to watch over his people enables us to work diligently here on earth, no matter the situation. So are we trusting the fact that Jesus is in fact the Lord and that he loves all those he brings into his house? That's what's going to get us to labor faithfully where he has us. If you want to think more, I have this book called The Gospel at Work. Uh, very useful stuff that covers not only these things, but a whole lot of other things in terms of uh, the gospel at work, how working for King Jesus gives purpose and meaning to our jobs. And if you are a member, I will give this book to you, and uh, I'll be right back there at, the, at uh, the doors there. And if you are that member who gets that book, and you are a non, and, and then you know of a non-member who wants it, your responsibility is to read it and give it to the non-member. So this book is for you if you want it. That's point number one, responsibilities to bond service. Uh, next, we move on to point number two, responsibilities of masters. There in verse nine, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The responsibility is, is clear. Uh, two calls, your function as commands. The first is positive, do the same to them. And second, it is, and then he gives a second one, which is negative. He says, stop your threatening. Uh, now, if Paul's call for slaves to an ongoing obedience was radical, his call to the masters is even more so. Roman law carved a large gap of value between the master and the slave. They grew up thinking that those who do less, those who have less, are of lesser value. That's that's the mindset that they grew up in, and maybe even the mindset that we have today, unfortunately. He says, though, that masters are to do the same to them. That is, with the same respect the gospel calls slaves to have towards the masters, the masters are to reciprocate that respect. The same sincerity that slaves are to have towards their masters. Here, the master is to exercise his authority with that same sincerity for their good. And so he says there, stop your threatening. You can imagine if the bondservant is rebelling, uh, not doing the responsibilities that was common in the culture to coerce with threats. Paul simply says, stop it. So here the gospel is to change the way people see each other and view each other here. No longer are people valued by what they do and what they possess. Instead, they're valued for the fact that they are created in the image of God. Which means everyone no matter if they are disabled or not, possesses value, dignity, and honor. So many in the world say, hey, your bondservant is nothing but a tool. But with God as head of the household, the earthly master and the bondservant here are equals. Um, by God's grace, you know, there were some in uh, the society that knew that, even though they were not Christians. They knew that, that they should be equals. Uh, and there were move, movements to curb the injustice of slavery. But where the world's morals reach their limit, God's ethic goes further. Not only is the master and slave equal in the house of God, but they are to see each other as brothers. So Paul wrote this letter to um, the letter of Philemon to a man named Philemon. You can turn over there. Uh, if you turn your Bibles to the right, if you go uh, far enough, you'll reach Philemon. And he wrote this letter of Philemon to, uh, regarding Philemon's runaway slave named Onesimus. Based on the contents of the letter, it seemed that Philemon's slave, Onesimus, had possibly stolen something from Philemon. Then he ran away to Rome. Somehow he gets in contact with Paul. He becomes a Christian. And, and in Philemon there in verse 13, this is what Paul says. He says, I'd be happy to keep Onesimus with me, but I am sending him back to you. Now look at 15. 
For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a, for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, which some people think here that Paul is uh, hinting that he should set him free automatically. But no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, both in the flesh, now get this, and in the Lord. That was hugely radical for these Christians here. The master was not to view the slave as a tool, but an equal. And then even more intimately than as brothers in Jesus Christ, brothers in the Lord. So here in the church, right, we know that in Ephesians, God is using his church to display the glory to the world. Here in the church, the gap of division is bridged by the reconciling power of the gospel. The barriers of hostility are broken down by gospel love. uh, And any who enter into God's family through the work of Christ are equals, even more so, brothers in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Just as slaves, just as the slave's responsibility is to flow from their identity, so is the master's. The responsibility of respecting their bondservant was to flow from the fact that they too are under the authority of God. They too are under the authority of God. So we saw the responsibility. Do the same to them. Stop your threatening. Now get this. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. By encouraging them to think about the location of God in heaven... Paul helps them realize again that God is the one that has all authority, that he alone is the sovereign one. It's an automatic check to the ego of a master, isn't it? Automatic check. And here I think we see a lot of God's heart, don't we? So if you are suffering in a workplace, here we see God's heart. When Paul speaks to the lowly bondservant, the bondservant is encouraged to trust in God's eternal reward, right? He rewards everyone. He gives to everyone. But when he speaks to masters, Paul's word confronts the conscience. And I think it supports the general scriptural truth that those in authority will be held to a higher authority, a greater standard. This is a sobering reality for anyone here who oversees others, who supervises, who leads. For those of us tempted to exercise our authority apart from God's will, whether it be in parenting or husbanding or as bosses, we do well to remember the truth that God is over us. We may act like we have sovereign authority and power over others, but above us all, from the lowest of the low to the highest enthroned earthly power, stands the Lord who will call us to account and refuses to save based on social standing, money, ethnicity, job description, but he judges us on whether we love, trust, and submit to him, whether we stand in our sin or not. The fact that God is the great equalizer strikes a chord in most of us, doesn't it? If you've ever suffered, if you've ever suffered from the hands of those who are in authority, the fact that God is the great equalizer strikes a chord in most of us. There is something intuitively right that there is, in fact, that there does indeed exist an inescapable measuring stick of equity and justice. So regardless if one is king over millions or a servant in that king's house, everyone is measured by the righteousness of God. This is a reminder to all of us, a check to our consciences, uh, a check to us in terms of where we place our identity in, whether we think we gain, where we think we gain our privilege. So do you think that you have some sort of privilege before God because of what you do, because of what you own? When Christ returns, he does not verify salvation or grant salvation based on your CV or how many people we led. what types of managers we were, but whether we have cleansed hearts. That's what matters to the judge who is over us all, which which is why the masters are checked. Be mindful. God 
is God over you and the bondservant. Remember the Jeremiah 79 passage that I wrote? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know what God says in the next verse? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. It's a wake-up call, isn't it? It functions as a wake-up call for us to examine what we find our identity in. Because if we're putting our identity in anything else and saying, oh yes, I gained privilege before God because of that thing. Friends, when God, when Christ returns, he doesn't use what you put your identity in, but he uses his very own self to judge. He is the measuring stick. It is his righteousness, his holiness. Now to those who suffer, those who recognize this, those who have believed and turned from the sins, this is a wonderful thing, isn't it? it? It doesn't matter how low you go. It doesn't matter what's been done to us. It doesn't matter where we stand in the social ladder. His grace is available to everybody who turns from their sins and calls on him. No matter how much money you have. No matter your background. No matter what kind of work you do. But for those who do not believe, For those who resist the authority of God, the fact that an impartial God stands over you, once again, is a wake-up call. There is nothing, not your authority in your job, not your morals, not your money, not your ethnicity. There is nothing in you that you can do on your own that gets you in good favor with God. The good news, friend, is that the very thing sinners need, God provides a new heart. He's the one who provides forgiveness, cleansing, and rescue. And despite our sinfulness, he's the one who sends his son to take on flesh to lift us up out of the darkness. Christian, to help you remember that those under your authority are your equals and your brothers and sisters, keep in mind that the Bible says that whatever authority you have, it has been delegated to you by God. It's not yours. Just delegated. He wants you temporarily to take care of these tasks. And then give them back to him. He wants you temporarily to take care of these employees. And then give them back to them. To God. Daniel chapter 2. 21 reads this. God brings down authorities. And he raises up others. He even goes on to say. That even the wisdom you have. The knowledge you have to do what God has called you to do. Has been given to you by God. And so you are stewards of everything you have. And God requires you to exercise that authority. For the benefit of others. How are you wielding your authority for the benefit of others? The wonderful thing here is that we are encouraged to look to God, our heavenly authority. Under his loving care and concern, everything is worked for the good of those who love him. That's the same authority that we are to consult, the same authority that we are to emulate and exercise. So may our authority look more and more like our compassionate Christ's authority. And God forbid that our authority would look like someone like the godless pharaohs in the book of Exodus who knows nothing of a changed heart, who knows nothing of a loving God who is steadfast in his mercy and just and righteous. To conclude, we have seen what it looks like to work for the glory of God, whether we are under authority or whether we are in authority. And the key to success, whether we are, whether we find ourselves under authority or with authority. It is not to define ourselves by the world's standards or to find our identity in the things of the world, but to find our identity in relationship to Jesus Christ. That's what it really means to live in a spirit-filled life. If you guys recall what kicked off this whole discussion about submission and authority, if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, 21, <clears throat> go ahead and turn back there. <clears throat> Actually, really, it starts in verse 18. Start there. Paul encourages folks. He says, look, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with a spirit. So he says, look, be filled with a spirit, and then he's going to get into what it looks like to be filled with a spirit. Addressing one another in a psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with the Lord, to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then also, being filled with the spirit means... Submitting to one another out of reverence of Christ. Submitting to the right authorities. And then also, what does it look like to live a spirit-filled life? It's also to exercise godly authority in a way that honors Jesus Christ. 
That's what launched us into this discussion where we were looking at responsibilities of wives and husbands, children and parents. And then now he concludes this section on submission authority with children, or sorry, uh, bond servants and then masters. So doing this all, fulfilling these responsibilities to the praise of Jesus' name, there we are to shine God's glory to the world through the church. So the question for you is, as we wrap up this little section here, and then as we move to the next, is are we submitting, trusting in the Lord? And are we exercising authority in a way that truly shines out the picture, the character of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fact that we can rest underneath His authority? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your example to us. As you fulfill your responsibility as the sovereign one, but who is also good and loving and gracious and merciful. Father, we as Christians recognize that we have tasted how good you are. That we know you. And that we are growing in our knowledge of you. Father, we pray for those of us who may be in authority, whether parents or bosses. Father, we pray that our authority, the ways in which we exercise this leadership that you've given us, it truly would reflect your character to those we lead. Give us a humility. May we see others around us as people with great value and so take interest in their lives. We pray, Lord, that in our exercise of leadership, that there would be no partiality. That we would love everyone that comes, that you bring to our path. And Lord, for those of us who are in submission to a greater authority, which is all of us. Father, we pray that we would fulfill the responsibilities that you have given to us, knowing that we are bondservants of Jesus. Knowing that it is your house that we live in. And you have given us the responsibilities you have so that we might as well shine forth your glory, that we might show others what it looks like to trust in a good and faithful Lord who delivers and rewards. We praise you for your being, we praise you for your character, as you are just and will judge, and as you are kind and will reward. Help us as First Baptist Church be a people who trust in you and look more like you. In your name we pray, amen.